Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. I'm voting today because I have a 10-year-old daughter, and I want her to be able to make whatever decisions she wants to make in her life. So I'm voting no on the abortion amendment in the state of Kansas. Voters went to the polls in five states Tuesday, and the results are rolling in. Abortion rights were on the ballot in Kansas. Uh, We're voting on an abortion amendment today. It would allow the uh, our legislature, which is heavily conservative, to pass any kind of abortion law whatsoever, uh, including not taking into account the life of the mother, rape, incest, that kind of thing. I just think this is taking us back 50 years. Uh, women should have autonomy over their own bodies. And the government, especially uh, mostly men in the legislature, shouldn't be deciding this issue between a woman and her doctor. So I hope the measure goes down in defeat today. It's going to be a close one. That was Mike in Kansas, and it turns out the results weren't so close. Kansans voted against eliminating abortion rights from the state constitution by nearly 20 percentage points. We were in Wichita a few weeks ago to talk about the measure as part of our Remaking America collaboration with KMUW and five other partner stations. The two-year project will explore all the ways our democracy does and doesn't work for all Americans. After the break, we head to Kansas and take a look at the voter outcomes there, and later on, we head to Michigan and Arizona. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. To have your questions answered on future topics, download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. We're discussing the outcome of Tuesday's primaries, and we're starting in Kansas. Joining us now is Dylan Lyson. He's a political reporter for the Kansas News Service. Dylan, welcome to 1A. Hi, thanks for having me. Also with us is Jessica Taylor. She's an editor with the Cook Political Report, where she covers senators and governors. Jessica, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So, Dylan, what exactly does this result mean for abortion access in Kansas? Right now, uh, abortion is legal in Kansas, so uh, that is going to remain in place. So, um, you know, uh, Kansas Republicans were hoping to reinstate more restrictions or even go further. But uh, with this ruling, um, that's not going to be possible. Those laws would be um, against the state constitution that says abortion is a right in the state of Kansas. Now, here's a clip of 41 Action News speaking with Emily Wells on election night. Wells is the president of Planned Parenthood Great Plains, which advocates for reproductive rights in Arkansas, Kansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma. We are relieved. We're thrilled. You know, we have for a long time trusted patients to make their own medical decisions. And it is hugely satisfying to know that Kansas feels the same way we do. And seeing this turnout, did it surprise you or no? It doesn't surprise us. You know, we have been working for months at this point to educate voters, to communicate with voters and tell them to get out, especially on a primary ballot when they often don't vote. And clearly they heard that message and they answered the call. Dylan, this was a primary election, which usually has lower turnout than the general election. But early numbers indicate record turnout levels. What do we know right now? Um, Well, yes, it's definitely uh, more than I think anyone expected. Uh, uh, The Kansas Secretary of State 
predicted like a 36% turnout, uh, um, which would alone have been a pretty massive for um, a primary election in Kansas. But the most recent number I saw was roughly 44%. So pretty far past that. And um, uh, the, that compared to 2018, the last primary election during a midterm uh, year was uh, the turnout was about 27%. So um, this vote this year was just a massive uh, increase compared to the past in Kansas. And has there been time to, to figure out anything about the demographics of who turned up to vote? It it's kind of uh, interesting. I don't have, you know, in-depth information on that, but I do know, you know, Democrats didn't have a lot um, of primary races um, in in the uh, uh, primary election, but they did. Uh, it looks like early voting, it showed that they were outpacing Republican votes. Um, so that's pretty telling um, what they were really focused on was the um, uh Uh, abortion amendment vote. Now, President Joe Biden said in a statement, quote, this vote makes clear what we know. The majority of Americans agree that women should have access to abortion and should have the right to make their own health care decisions, end quote. Jessica, what implications does this have for abortion access beyond Kansas? Well, this was the first major test after the Dobbs decision sent the sent, sent the question of abortion back to the states. And as as Ben was saying, there it's in in, in a state like Kansas. Um, this was this was huge because it's a red state. Um, it, clearly, there were no down ballot races, um, no real Democratic races at all to drive such turnouts. We saw huge Democratic turnout. And, you know, Republicans that clearly voted for this, too. But is it a boost? Yes. Does it give Democrats an issue that is clearly sailing in at the polls? Yes. But and when come November, people are going to be voting for candidates. And I think you know, they're going to have to weigh that against other issues. I still see it being more salient in governor's races. I think it can have a big impact in a place like Michigan um, and Wisconsin, uh, where there are trigger laws that, that are on the books that Democratic governors in very close races are you know, really pushing because they would be sort of the ground stop to a Republican legislature. Um, I think we're clearly going to see Democratic messaging ramp up on this and really try to move it to the forefront. But again, there's still so many other issues that polls continue to show that voters are most worried about, the economy, inflation, um, supply chain, things like that, that are still top of mind. But it does show us that abortion is is salient and is driving voters. It's just how does that play out when it's not just a very clear yes or no question when you have to weigh candidates and different issues against each other come November. Dylan, how did this measure end up on the primary ballot? Well, it all started in 2019 when the uh, Kansas Supreme Court um, struck down restrictions um, and in that ruling, uh, you know, said that the Kansas or the Kansas uh, Constitution offers the right to abortion throughout the state. Um, so the Kansas lawmakers responded by sending the amendment to voters. Um, they passed that in 2021, basically trying to reverse that decision. Um, so that was placed on the primary ballot uh, for this year in 2022. Um, a lot of people think they did that um, to uh, kind of you know see a lower turnout and see much more. Um, a much larger influence from people who vote in every election, which happens to be in Kansas, a lot of uh, anti-abortion uh, voters. But um, that kind of uh, that kind of the stakes of everything changed once 
Um, Roe v. Wade was overturned earlier earlier this summer, and it kind of turned a primary election into this really high stakes vote in Kansas. Kind of a philosophical question to the change to the Constitution to a uh, decision that would have uh, real world consequences almost immediately. So, um, you know, uh, I I don't think lawmakers expected this to happen, but um, you know uh, that that was. Uh, um, it opened the the vote, the primary vote, to all voters by doing that, and they definitely came out to uh, cast their ballots. And what were the campaign strategies in this fight, both for and against the amendment? Well, uh, against the amendment, um, Kansans for Constitutional Freedom, they were the main campaign. Um, they were, uh, you know, arguing um, that by approving the amendment, it would open the door for more restrictions, um, including an, uh, a total ban. Um, you know, Kansas is right in the middle of the Midwest, obviously, and close to the South. And all the neighboring states around here, Missouri, Oklahoma, and Texas, they've all installed um, new restrictions up to a total ban. So it wasn't that far of a stretch to get people to understand that, that that was a possibility here, especially with those states all being Republican-dominated states as well. Um, however, the uh, Value Them Both Coalition, who um, supported the amendment and is uh, part of uh, Kansans for Life, which is one of the largest political entities in Kansas, uh, supporting conservative um, candidates and the anti-abortion um, policies. They they kept trying to tell everyone that uh, uh, a vote for the amendment does not mean there's going to be a ban. And in fact, you know, the vote itself didn't install any new restrictions. It just opened the door for policymakers to um, make those decisions. But uh, it appears that didn't really resonate with uh, voters. Dylan, where does the fight over abortion access in Kansas go from here? Uh, that's a good question. I know um, Kansans for Life, the group that was kind of supporting the um, uh, campaign uh, against the amendment. Um, they said after the loss, you know, they called it a temporary setback. Um, so where they go from here, uh, not sure just yet. They didn't, you know, say what they want to do next. But, um, you know, they're one of the largest uh, political groups um, uh, in the state. So um, they're surely going to try uh, a different method um, to try to restrict abortion in Kansas. We got this message from Anne in Kansas who emailed, Kansas does have many restrictions on abortion already. It's not free rule for abortions. Dylan, what's the landscape like in Kansas right now? Uh, that's, uh, you know, uh, you know, there's four abortion clinics in Kansas, which isn't very many, and they're both in um, Wichita and Overland Park, which is in the Kansas City metro area. So that's South Central Kansas and Northeast Kansas. Um, so, you know, people in Western Kansas and maybe part of Central Kansas, um, they're hundreds of miles away from abortion clinics. So just because it's, you know, uh, uh, a right in Kansas and it's accessible doesn't mean it's meaningfully accessible for those people. So um, people in Western Kansas kind of already live in a world where abortion is, um, you know, not um, uh, accessible. So they'll have to drive hundreds of miles either to Wichita or even hundreds of miles into uh, Colorado um, to, to get that access. So, um, but there was an abortion clinic in Wichita after um, the vote yesterday that was kind of talking about this and saying, you know, Kansans clearly want um, access to abortion, but um, they need the state would need to, um, you know, expand access to provide meaningful access to all Kansans. And I believe the cutoff for abortion access is 22 weeks. Is that accurate? 
Yes, that's correct. Now, voters in Kansas also decided who would face Democratic Governor Laura Kelly on the ballot in November. Who will she be running against? Uh, she'll be running against Republican Derek Schmidt, who's currently the attorney general. Um, so uh, that's, uh, uh, you know, they both had primaries yesterday, but neither were competitive. They were, it's always kind of been um, believed that they would be the two facing each other in November. Jessica, how competitive will that governor's race be in November? This is probably the most competitive that we have of all of the governor's races. Um, Kelly is the only governor, only Democratic governor running in a state that um, Trump won. Uh, she won in 2018 in, you know, a bl- very favorable election year. Um, Kansas was coming off of the very unpopular tenure of Governor Sam Brownback. Um, and sh- the nominee was uh, se- was Secretary of State Chris Kobach, um, who I don't know if it's been called yet, but I think he he's also ahead in the attorney general's race there. Um, and so sort of a perfect con- confluence of events, you know, um, and she's been sort of a moderate democrat and we we do see that there are more crossover votes in, in governor's races because you're not voting for a party you can vote more for the person um you know kelly has talked a lot about this about abortion and i think these results underscore that she will continue to do so but she is the most endangered incumbent out there when we look at the map and the environment but certainly these kansas results do give Democrats, I think, hope there. So Dylan, what races will you be watching most closely headed into November? Uh, definitely the governor's race. Uh, Laura Kelly's trying to, uh, you know, earn re-election. Um, that, that race, uh, if the amendment passed, that race still would have been a huge deal because, um, you know, Democratic Laura Kelly, she would have veto power if she were re-elected to stop restrictions. But And then uh, uh, Kansan, the, the Republicans would have been um, trying to remove that veto power by unseating her. So um, uh, that's not necessarily the case anymore, but it's still going to be a big uh, race. I mean, it's a governor's race, the head uh, um, state officials. So that's always going to be uh, uh, the most important vote on uh, Election Day in Kansas. That's Dylan Lyson with the Kansas News Service. Dylan, thanks for speaking with us. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Coming up, we head to Michigan and Arizona to discuss Tuesday's primary elections in those states. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. And remember, you can share your thoughts and questions with us. Just tweet us at 1A. Let's move now from Kansas to Arizona. Ben Giles is an editor and political reporter for KJZZ. That's the public radio station in Phoenix, Arizona. Ben, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So Mark Fincham won the GOP nomination for Secretary of State. He's an election conspiracy theorist who was endorsed by former President Donald Trump. If he wins in November, that will put him in charge of running Arizona's elections. Ben, how big of a deal is this? It's a huge deal if Fincham wins. He technically doesn't run the nuts and bolts of the elections. Those are conducted by Arizona's 15 counties. But the Secretary of State does have decision-making power when it comes to uh, dealing with lawsuits against various election laws. Do you Should you defend a, a lawsuit against a, you know, a particular law that maybe Mark Fincham doesn't think should be a law? Maybe he just lets it slide. He's also in charge of, or would be in charge of, drafting an election procedures manual, which is sort of a how-to guide for those 15 counties to follow state laws and follow federal laws as well in conducting the election 
if Fincham can pull this off, um, I'm, I'm not sure if he can, but if he can pull this off, that would be a big blow, I think, not just to the voters, but to those election officials who would have to work with, as you mentioned, a, a conspiracy theorist. Now, the big lie has been a talking point in the governor's race to Arizona's current governor, Republican Doug Ducey, is term limited. That race is still too close to call. Jessica, who are the two Republican frontrunners to replace him? So right now leading is Carrie Lake, who was a a longtime former um, TV news anchor on Phoenix television. She's undergone quite the transformation over the past few years, though, to a full Trump loyalist conspiracy theory. Also one of the people in the same vein as the Secretary of State nominee trying to overturn the election. Um, And then Karen Taylor Robson, who was on the... University of Arizona Board of Regents, and she was, we saw a clear split here with Trump backing Lake and um, Doug Ducey, as you mentioned, the outgoing governor, who is also the co-chair of the RGA, the Republican Governors Association, backing Robeson, um, along with uh, former Vice President Mike Pence, former Arizona Governor Jan Brewer. So she had a lot of people behind her. Listen, this is still going to be a competitive open seat race that Republicans have to defend. I think Robson was the would be a better general election candidate, but can Lake win? Absolutely. But in the same vein, she's going to have trouble appealing to those independent voters. Um, you know, she does have name ID already, having been you know, on TV in the largest metro area in the state there in Phoenix and Maricopa County. But she certainly changed from those days. She completely bashes the media now where where she once worked. And uh, so the Democratic nominee will be is Katie Hobbs, who is the secretary, current secretary of state. She's been on TV and sort of boosted her national profile amidst the, that, you know, Maricopa County audit and defending uh, the 2020 results. Um, she there, there's some baggage with her too. There was a um, discrimination and uh, a scandal with a, an employee that was uh, found to have been unfairly terminated when she was in the state senate that worked for her. So we expect Republicans to bring that up. But you know, if it's if it's Lake, I think that makes it a little harder for Republicans. And where where do those sort of end that crucial block of of independence that Ben was talking about, where where did they go in this race? Ben, why do you think the big lie is, has gained such traction in Arizona, especially among candidates? Well, I think a big part of it has been the fact that the Republican Party in Arizona has pretty much bent entirely to, to Trump's will and to Trump's lies. Um, you have a, a chair of the party here, Kelly Ward, who has done everything in her power to... Um, to endorse and support uh, election-denying candidates without actually saying that, oh, the party is officially endorsing them. It's like a, um, a credit of the local reporter here called it a, a distinction without a difference. She goes out of her way to prop up and support them and let voters know that these are the candidates that she personally is supporting. Um, and, you know, that's a that's a uh, as big a sign as any to Republican voters in Arizona of who they should support as well. So you just have this infrastructure here that is uh, beholden to the big lie. And I think that's why you saw folks like former Vice President Mike Pence and current Arizona Governor Doug Ducey. Um, it was a little odd to see Ducey make an endorsement in the primary here for governor. Usually he'd probably sit that out and just see you know who the voters chose and then support the Republican candidate that voters wanted. But 
there seemed to be concern, and justifiably so, that someone like Carrie Lake might have trouble in a general election. She might not have uh, quite the appeal on the November ballot that she did to uh, you know, the Republican primary voters here in Arizona. Uh, there's a real concern about electability there. Um, and now we're going to see how that plays out. Well, as you mentioned, former President Donald Trump endorsed Carrie Lake, while former Vice President Mike Pence endorsed Karen Taylor Robeson. There is only one candidate in this race who will be ready on day one to lead Arizona even to greater heights, and that's Karen Taylor Robeson. How much do these endorsements matter, Ben? Well, apparently the Pence endorsement didn't matter too much in Arizona. You know, he's not uh, the most popular guy in Republican circles at this point, but he is that, you know, establishment establishment Republican who, you know, like Ducey, wants to see people move past the 2020 election. Um, but what we saw in Arizona or, or seeing in Arizona so far is that a significant portion of the Republican voting bloc here isn't ready to move on, still believes 2020 election was stolen, still believes Donald Trump should be in office. Um, So they're not going to listen to somebody like Mike Pence or Doug Ducey who wants to look to the future. I want to turn back uh, to Blake Masters, who won the GOP nomination for U.S. Senate. He'll face Senator Mark Kelly, a Democrat, in November. And Masters made clear what he would have done on January 6th, 2021, if he'd been Arizona senator. Here's him speaking with NBC's Vaughn Hilliard in July. If you had been in the U.S. Senate, would you have objected to the 2020 certification? You know, I think what Hawley and I believe what Cruz did was right. I think their constituents had a lot of concerns. Senators Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz were two of eight senators who voted not to certify the 2020 election. Ben, what more do we need to know about Blake Masters? Well, Masters is the acolyte of billionaire conservative power broker Peter Thiel. Uh, That's a big part of the reason why, other than Trump's endorsement, he was able to uh, pull out the win in this crowded GOP primary for U.S. Senate. Uh, Thiel spent millions and millions of dollars on uh, an outside spending to help support Masters and will probably continue to do so well into the general. But Masters is kind of this – he's walking a tightrope as – sort of a bomb thrower politically, but also trying to, you know, portray himself to Arizona voters as this, you know, um, do-good family man. He's got uh, political signs up all over the valley here in the Phoenix metro area with um, his wife and children all over uh, all over the signs. It's, it's just, he's an interesting dynamic in that he's trying to come across as like a well-reasoned, a well-rounded person, but he also really does have some radical ideas, uh, including, as we just heard, about how to handle the election in 2020. That's Ben Giles. He's an editor and political reporter with KJZC in Phoenix, Arizona. Ben, thanks for being on the show. And let's turn now to Michigan. Another Republican congressman who voted to impeach President Donald Trump in 2021 was voted out in the primary. Peter Meyer was one of 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach the former president. So far, half of them have either lost primary bids or decided not to seek reelection. Joining us now to talk about that race and more from Ann Arbor, Michigan, is Zoe Clark. She's the co-host of the show It's Just Politics at Michigan Radio. Great to have you on, Zoe. Now, in a statement after that congressional primary race was called. Peter Meyer said, quote, I'm proud to have remained true to my principles, even when doing so came at a significant political cost, end quote. What do we need to know about the GOP nominee, John Gibbs? 
Yeah, so he is a former Trump administration official, uh, I guess one could say sort of handpicked by Donald Trump, endorsed early by the former president, um, who decided to primary from the very far right uh, sitting uh, Republican Congressman Peter Meyer, who, as you noted, was one of 10 Republicans to vote for Donald Trump's second impeachment. We should say this was actually one of Peter Meyer's first votes because he was a freshman lawmaker at the time that that vote happened in uh, early 2021. How much influence does Trump still have with Michigan voters? Well, it's a really great question, Jen, and I think that's what we're all trying to dissect this morning, right? So, of course, this Donald Trump uh, endorsed, selected uh, John Gibbs, former administration official, did win in the third, again, from the far right. We should also note Tudor Dixon. Uh, She is a conservative media personality. She won her race for governor last night. She will face Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Um, I want to be really clear, though. We're seeing some headlines that sort of are, you know, Trump nominated Tudor, you know, wins Michigan. You know, he uh, endorsed her late Friday night of this past week, right? This was not a hand-endorsed candidate. You know, really, the writing, I think, was on the wall that she was looking like she was going to win it. And last minute, he came in and endorsed her. There were no in-person big festivities with him and her standing on a stage. Um, And, you know, there were also some local, you know, state races uh, for state house and state senate that Trump did uh, kind of jump into, try to put the guiding hand, and uh, five of those seats out of 10 won. So, you know, Michigan, as you know, Jen, is a purple state, and I think that's the takeaway uh, as well this morning. Well, I want to turn back to that Republican primary race because Democrats inserted themselves into it. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee spent more than $400,000 on ads in that race. That's according to reporting from Mother Jones. Here's an ad the DCCC paid for focused on Peter Meyer's opponent, John Gibbs. John Gibbs is too conservative for West Michigan. Handpicked by Trump to run for Congress, Gibbs called Trump the greatest president and worked in Trump's administration with Ben Carson. Gibbs has promised to push It goes on from there. Zoe, what was the strategy behind paying for an ad like that? Yeah, well, it was a very controversial strategy, as you know. What they were trying to do, uh, the Democrats, we should say, is boost John or excuse me, boost John Gibbs, right? What they wanted to do was by saying how extreme he was, get far-right Republicans in the 3rd Congressional District to vote for him. Uh, Peter Meyer really pushed back on this and sort of skewered Democrats saying, you know, you're talking about wanting to be the pro-democracy party, but you're spending more than, you know, $425,000 trying to prop up a candidate who believes the 20 2020 election uh, results were not valid, believes that Trump won. And what it ended up doing was kind of the what the you know Democrats wanted. But the opposite of that ad is far right Republicans then turned out for John Gibbs, because what Democrats are thinking and hoping is that Hillary Skolton, the Democrat in the third congressional district in November, can then beat John Gibbs, that it would be harder for her to beat in this district, a more, quote unquote, moderate Republican who was Peter Meyer. We did reach out to the DCCC and it had this statement, John Gibbs winning this primary seals the fate of Republicans hoping to keep this now Democratic-leaning district. Republicans have no choice but to embrace their unelectable MAGA extremist candidate. 
Jessica, where else are we seeing Democrats use this strategy? We have seen this pop up other other places, but I think it got the most pushback here because it was the DCCC doing this from member dues and you had such a close race there because a lot of Democrats saw Meyer as someone they could work across the aisle with. And really what has contributed to a lot of the polarization we've seen as Congress is just the obliteration of moderates on both sides of the party. When, when we've had previous wave elections, Republicans have defeated, you know, blue dog Democrats and then uh, Democrats, uh, Republicans, uh, a lot of the moderates are losing if they haven't lost already. I mean, we, we've we seen very few of the people that voted for impeachment like Meyer advance. Um, now, two do look like they will in Washington state, Jamie Herrera Butler and Dan Newhouse, but that's really only because the state has an all-party primary where the top two candidates advance regardless of party. So in a primary, they're particularly vulnerable. We've seen governors, we've seen this play out in governor's races. Um, we saw in Pennsylvania, the Democratic nominee in waiting there, Attorney General um, uh, Josh Shapiro spent money to try to boost Doug Mastriano, who they saw as the weakest candidate. But sort of the same thing Zoe said. All of this came late, um, you know, in, in the way that it was a tr- late Trump endorsement, late with Mastriano, who was already on track to win. Um, we've seen them weigh in in uh, Maryland that was a couple of weeks ago to come sort of completely take that race off the board in Illinois. But all of those are like deep blue states, too. So, when you're playing in in sort of a more swingish district, well, this is, I think it's a Biden plus eight district there, that third district, um, in this environment, that type of district, anything, we, we kind of view it as anything under a, a vote that went for Biden by 10 points, um, it's... It, it, it can be risky. Now, we did, my colleague David Washerman did shift our rating in this race. Who he, David covers our House races after Gibbs's win from toss-up to lean Democrats. So we do see Hillary Shulton, the Democratic nominee there, having um, a slight advantage now because of that primary. So, you know, the DCCC got their wish in the weaker candidate, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a scenario where, where Gibbs can win. Well, I want to move on to the gubernatorial primary. But first, Zoe, I want to read this tweet we got from Melinda Billingsley, who says Detroit's 13th district winner got 28% of the vote. The result is Detroit will have no black representation in Congress. Ranked choice voting would have made a huge difference in that nine person field, especially among the eight black candidates. Walk us through what happened in this race and the significance of this change. Let's start with the significance, which, as uh, you just said, the first time in generations and generations, a black Democrat will not be representing the city of Detroit in Michigan. Um, Why this basically came to be was because Michigan got new maps, right? After every census, redistricting happens. What was special about Michigan this past times in map drawing, though, was an independent commission for the first time in Michigan history actually made these maps rather than, you know, the Democratic or Republican Party. This is something Michigan voters on actually at the couple elections ago, and it was the first time we saw it in action. And basically what happened is sitting Congressman Rashida Tlaib, who many of your listeners will know is sort of somewhat of a firebrand, right, nationally, part of the quote-unquote squad. Her district was sort of redrawn, so she took out in the 12th district, which meant that the 13th congressional district, again, representing much of Detroit, was open. 
And it really was, in many respects, a free-for-all. You know, as you said, nine candidates jumped in. um, And what we saw was a plurality winner, right? Shri Tanadar, a sitting state lawmaker who also had run earlier. He actually was in the primary race with our sitting Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer, in 2018, winning the field. I was just talking with a strategist, though, who said, you know, if some of these candidates had just decided to step back, it could have been uh, that another uh, sitting state senator, uh, Adam Ollier or Portia Roberson, uh, uh, two uh, black Democrats could have actually won. But instead, because this is such a, you know, in Michigan, this primary means basically winning the race. It is in all likelihood uh, that Democrat Tree Tanadar will be representing, you know, Detroit come November. So again, current Governor Gretchen Whitmer was uncontested in the Democratic primary. Tudor Dixon won the Republican nomination. How do you expect this matchup to play out? What are you watching? Jessica, I'll come to you. Yes, so this is a race that the Republican primary was just a complete circus, really. You had the two front-running candidates, James Craig, who was a black former Detroit police chief, um, and Perry Johnson, a businessman. They were considered the front-runners at the top of the race. And then due to signature fraud, they were both kicked off the ballot. So then you had sort of a scramble. There was another candidate, Ryan Kelly, that had been arrested by the FBI for um, events on January 6th. So there's just been a big mess there. Tudor Dixon did win. She was probably the best one that could have come out out of this, but many issues. I think Gretchen Whitmer has her approval rating has remained strong even as Biden has struggled in the state. So we actually moved this race recently from toss up to lean Democrats, showing that Whitmer has the advantage there. That's Jessica Taylor. She covers senators and governors for the Cook Political Report. We also heard from Zoe Clark. She's the program director at Michigan Radio. She also co-hosts the show. It's just politics. Jessica, Zoe, thanks to you both. This show is part of our Remaking America collaboration with six public radio stations around the country looking at the stability of our nation's democracy. Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today's producer was June Leffler. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.